Everyone is staying safe and finding positive ways to get through these weird times. As some of you may know, I've been living in France for a while, and I've had a lot of French people ask me about the American healthcare system. And honestly, while I do feel like I have a certain understanding, and I I do give it a shot, but I often guide people towards resources that can explain it much better than I can. But I thought it would be cool if I could guide somebody to my own resource and I thought it would be even cooler if I could combine that with finding somebody that has taken bold action to make positive change in the healthcare industry. So I had the idea to interview Michael Skolnick who is currently the CEO of Teachers Health Trust, a healthcare company in Las Vegas who are responsible for 40,000 teachers healthcare. He's trying to create a model healthcare system that can work for every single American. He's worked his entire career trying to help people, and I believe him to be a very good source for bold moves only. So there's over 27 million Americans without health insurance and millions more who are underinsured. It's an immense problem, and I believe it's worth trying to understand it better. And if there's ever been a time that exposes the problems with our health care system, it's right now. And regardless of your politics, regardless of what you believe is necessary to combat this issue, I believe that it's worth listening to Michael and he has a very interesting perspective um, because he's in it. Uh, he's in the game, <laughs> you could say. Uh, but he's, he's the kind of person you want to be listening to. I'll admit it's long and extremely detailed and it may not even outline every single problem, but as Michael says, healthcare is rocket science. It's super hard and just difficult to completely understand. Um, honestly, I'm personally just sick and tired of hearing stories of how our healthcare system has failed us. I'm sick and tired of hearing how getting medical treatment can bankrupt us. The majority of bankruptcies in the United States are due to medical expenses. I'm, I'm tired of worrying about going to the dentist because if I somehow get a cavity, it will be an extremely inconvenient cost or how when I definitely broke my toe, I just toughed it out because I thought it would be fine and that it would just be an unnecessary cost if I went to the doctor. I've heard over and over again of people getting enormous bills that take years to pay off, even for procedures or visits that weren't even necessary but just recommended or demanded by the doctor. And when I share these stories with my French friends, they can't even fathom people actually going through this. And obviously there's no perfect system, but it comes down to whether or not you believe that healthcare is a human right. And our current system does not show this to be the case. Something needs to change. And here is somebody who is trying to make that change. So here's Michael Skolnick. Jason. Hey. Can you hear me? Good. How are you doing? Okay. So I thought it would be a good idea to have you on the podcast as healthcare is such an important subject that has been argued and has been talked about extensively over the past few years, especially. And you're someone who has found a way to actually take bold action to try to make the system better. Um, so mm -hmm. you currently work for Teachers Health Trust and you came in and completely transformed it. Can you talk about what Teachers Health Trust is and exactly what you've done to improve it and what the main objective is and what you're working towards? Sure. 
So basically, T- Teachers Health Trust, and for um, shortness purposes, let's just call it THT. THT is a responsibility to manage the care of 40,000 lives, of which 19,700 of them are teachers who work with students each day. The teachers have a, a very different type of lifestyle. They work from 8 o'clock to about 3.30. From 3.30 to 4.30, they have to deal with parent issues. They have to get home, do homework, but they have 1.7 jobs. So that means they don't just go home and do homework. They might be working on a second job or they have health care needs and issues. But if you're done at 4.30 each day, I'm not sure you can take care of your health care requirements based on that type of busy schedule. So they have issues receiving health care. Secondly, like most people in this country, they're overworked and they have less free time than ever. Third, teachers' income is about averaging close to $58,000 a year. It's actually $59,980 a year. And um, they are um, trying to figure out how to make it work on that limited income, too. So all of that sets them up to be in a situation where health care is a right to them, and it should be a right. But on the other hand, they don't have a chance to actually deal with their health care. So what do they do? They go to the emergency rooms for clinical things that required really preventive issues. For example, 30.15% of teachers in the Clark County School District have chronic conditions, one or more. In a normal environment where people work nine to five, do not have those issues in the same age group because their average age is about 43. In a normal working environment, people have some time. Teachers have little time to take care of themselves. So all of a sudden, metabolic syndrome becomes an issue. All of a sudden, hypertension becomes an issue. All of a sudden, lipids become an issue. Diet becomes an issue. Wellness becomes an issue because they don't have time for that. So we inherited a system that treated the teacher, one, like they were the victim instead of as being the one that really requires health care. Two, it was underfunded, didn't receive an increase in funding for 10 years. And just like many school districts, it was underfunded where most of the help is needed, which is with health care or salary. Third, it um, didn't have systems itself in place, so it outsourced everything it did, like many of these plans. And the responsibility to manage health care seemed to be at a loss. So teachers got the raw end of the deal. So I came in here about a year and a quarter ago, and they asked me, would I take this on? There had been litigation prior to that because of some of the issues of how the plan was managed. There were issues with, um, you know, making sure people had access to the care. And there were issues with affordability and bills not being paid. So I inherited probably one of the biggest nightmares I've ever seen. But I took it on for three reasons. One, I saw this as an opportunity to build a microcosm of what could be done nationally to build the best healthcare 
in this country to make access easier, to work with teachers who, I explain, have all of these issues that impact them and figure a way to make it work for them and drive um, better outcomes so teachers become less metabolically challenged and less chronic. And brought in a team of people, um, brought in new attorneys so that it could be managed more efficiently, got the crud out. In one year, we took $18 million out of the middle of this healthcare system. So in other words, there were $18 million being spent on healthcare items that were unnecessary. And it had nothing to do with benefits, has nothing to do with expenses. It was people sifting dollars out of the system. And that happens all over this country. If you can't clean the middle up, what you have is um, basically people talking about healthcare is too expensive. It looks like it can't be repaired and nothing gets done. And all this, you'll have somebody talking about we want Medicare for all. You'll have somebody else talking about single payer, somebody about the Affordable Care Act. But in either all those instances, you still have that middle profiting off the system. And we were able to eliminate it here and actually build new programs and services that make access better, uh, pharmaceuticals better, and overall health care improve. Could you elaborate a little more on the middleman? Because I feel like that is something that's really essential. And a lot of people, including myself, don't understand it a whole lot. Well, there's there were in this case here specifically, we had three middle, three or more middlemen. We had pharmaceutical, what they call pharmacy benefit management company. There was consultants. There were what they call rebate companies. And the pharmacy costs, we were able to lower about $6.2 million. And we did that effectively with a partner located in the Bay Area that came in and realized that if we get the middle out, which is that benefit management company, you can lower about 13% of your costs in pharmacy. So there's a, in, in pharmacy, there's what's known as a pharmacy benefit manager. These are companies like Express Scripts, like Optum, like um, MedImpact and others. Their job is to be able to find the most profitable, cost-effective medications for individuals, but with the goal of being able to get higher rebates and pass those rebates on to health plans and others. And so therefore, you'll see formularies. Do you know what a formulary is? I do not. So a formulary tells you within your health plan what pharmaceuticals you can have or might not be able to get because they're not in that formulary. And they have what they call tiers. And this might be complicated for a podcast, but they have tiers. Tier one are usually the generic drugs and some of the less costly um, commercially available pharmaceuticals. Tier two are usually brand names that can be received by via generic or they don't have generics yet. And tier three are what we call biologics or specialty medications. 
say you've heard of Humira. I'm sure you've seen commercials. And these are drugs that could cost $5,000 a vial. And these are very expensive. So you have to figure out as a health plan how to manage those. Well, these PBMs determine what they look and they determine which is most, which drug has the most profitability built into it. And they put those at tier one. They get a piece of the profit. The profit goes back to the plan or to whomever as part of a rebate because there's cost, there's a rebate that comes back based on pharmaceutical spend every quarter. And these rebates are pretty much unnecessary because it's like getting, it's similar to getting almost a coupon. But instead of having rebates and instead of getting these profitable jobs, I mean, drugs, I think most importantly, we need to bring the cost of those drugs down, not have rebates and get pharmacy to be affordable for all instead of something that other people get to make profit off of. Did I totally confuse you here? I mean, it's definitely complicated, <laughs> but uh... healthcare, you know, healthcare is rocket science and it's very complicated. And until you work in it, it's very difficult to understand the language. It's got its own vocabulary. I teach a class in health economics. I give my class a, a list of the vocabulary words that are unique to healthcare, the different acronyms and stuff. And it's 32 pages long. Right. So if you, so they could keep looking up when I throw out a buzzword here or there, they're able to find it. But basically the middle is profiting. We had a network company here that was called well health that was purchased by healthcare partners. Now, most non-for-profit health plans that are owned by education, you know, their education type, not-for-profits like the Teachers Health Trust, they don't. their board is made up of teachers. So when you have teachers on the board, they're not financial geniuses. They could be, but they're not normally. They don't understand the infrastructure of what goes on in healthcare. And as a result, there's nobody managing the shop, for example. So this company called Well Health came in here and told them we could create what we call a medical home, which will make it, we'll work with a lot of the chronic diseases, work with the members. We'll put this together. All you have to do is give us the doctors that are in your network, which were currently being processed and managed by the Teachers Health Trust. Give it to Well Health. They'll take it on. They'll figure out how to do this more effectively. But what they did is they the Teachers Health Trust gave them their doctors. They had 3,700 contracted providers. Those 3,700 contracted providers went to Well Health. Well Health at that point decided, now we're a bigger company. We have 3,700 providers. We didn't have to pay anything for them. The contracts were transferred. And they went ahead and said, look how big we are. And another company bought them and they made millions of dollars off of that called healthcare partners. Healthcare partners made well health rich. Nothing went back to the teachers after they sold that network. Then healthcare partners never delivered 
on the patient-centered medical home. After doing it for three years, when I came in here, I looked at what they were doing, and I saw they were siphoning about $12 million, a little less than that, basically from the middle that was unnecessary that went to them because they own the network. Long story, I could take you through that, but I think that's what you need to know here is that they're middlemen that come in and figure out ways to make a lot of money off of healthcare because of the lack of knowledge outside of what they do. And it seems so, like it seems like because it's a business, the the main objective and the main incentive is to make money. So wouldn't you say that that's the root? of all the problems or would you say that there's something else? Well, I think money needs, to me, people need to make money to survive in society, right? So where the money is made is, God, we have to look at. If we're dealing with healthcare, the providers are actually doing the work. Um, The providers are who should be receiving the payment for the work, it should be fair, but they should be receiving payment for what they do. It's the non-provider piece that's in the middle, like a well health or some of the, there was a company called TriStar that was kind of siphoning money out of Teachers Health Trust at about $400,000 a month to process claims and really should have been half that price. Um, Everybody was living off of this company. There was a third party, there was another company called RX Solutions that actually was making money to tell members how to go about getting their pharmaceuticals so that they could save money on what they paid when that shouldn't be that complicated. You What a member pays should be the lowest cost pharmaceutical they get for the, for the requirements that they have. And they were doing that and they were making like $35,000 a month off of that. I could go on all day and give you the vultures that were preying off the public sector and the not-for-profit sector to make a fortune here. But we built an infrastructure. So what we did is we built an infrastructure that had never been in place for 36 years and made it. So now we have access to information at our fingertips on every claim, every member, every provider, every benefit. We simplified the benefits to make it easier for members to get the care they needed. Uh, We reduced the, we, they were, we were, we receive about, about 380, $390 per member per month for everything. That includes the education, the education, well, Clark County School District provides the teacher's health trust with a monthly payment of about $612 per subscriber. And then each subscriber has beneficiaries when you that they have to pay for, which are it's minimal. And when it's all said and done, we went from receiving, um, we receive about $380 per member per month here, 376 per member per month to be accurate, um, which is about 32% below the national average. Our goal is to be able to try to work within that, but the average teacher's health plan receives about, based on 70 different teacher's health plans around the country, receives about $544 per member per month. 
and they spend about $494 of that. The teacher's health plan that I'm leading was spending $463, and they were only receiving $392 per member per month to take care of that uh, $463. I was able, by taking out the $18 million from the middle, to bring it down to $392 per member per month. We have reserves, which turn into investments. That investment helps us break even each month. If we could go, if we were able to increase our payment from 392 to 412 to about between 410 and 420 per member per month, we would still be the lowest health plan in the country, but we would have figured out how to deliver care lower than any other health plan in the United States with the lowest out-of-pocket cost for the member and the highest benefit level. And that's our goal, and that's what we're doing. So by getting that $18 million of wasteful spending out, we improved access and we improved quality. We fixed pharmacy. Right now we have pharmacy that is delivering to teachers. So now they have an application and that application on their phone, they can have the pharmacy, your doctor could send it to there. They order the pharmacy. The pharmacy company tells them when they'll be there. And then it notifies them like Uber does that they'll be there in a minute or two minutes or three minutes. But the application also gives doctors an ability when you go see your doctor to see all of the pharmaceuticals you've taken and what you're on, et cetera. It's free same-day delivery and with more affordable co-pays than they had before. So would you say that this whole system is a bit of a guinea pig and as you said, you hope to expand it, but um, how... I wouldn't call it a guinea pig. I wouldn't call it a guinea pig because um, it's working. So it's more or less a, um, a model. And it's a model that can show how to build low-cost care and give it to more and more people for low out-of-pocket costs. Because really... Your ability to afford health care is based on what you spend, what you could afford to pay out of pocket, correct? Right. And if you can't afford to pay for the care that you get benefits for, what good is that care? In California, you have um, uh, these Western Health Advantage plans that serve uh, the North Bay in the Affordable Care Act that have premiums of around $900, $800, $900, and the out-of-pocket deductible before you even get your benefits at it, like an 80, 80% covered, 20% out-of-pocket, the deductible is between three dollars and $5,000. How do people get care like that? How could they afford it? That's not what I consider the way to move forward with care. And that's because there was no government option, correct? So... Now, what we're doing here is kind of building that government option, but forcing vendors, forcing pharmaceuticals, companies, and doing what we need to do to be able to keep the cost low. So that's that pharmacy piece. Um, we've worked with the doctors, brought every contract in-house, and we regained our network back from Well Health because we fired Well Health. And... Um, 
We now have access to affordable doctors and our rates we have, it's a win-win. It's the lowest, it's a much lower average than we were paying before, but doctors get paid fairly. You know, nobody wants to be underpaid and you never want to underpay people. That's what a lot of the health plans try to do, like Cigna and United. They go in and they drive down the costs significantly at the expense of the doctor instead of at the expense of profit that they are looking to make. In our case, we don't have a profit incentive here. So we were able to get the doctors at fair rates, pay them fairly, and work with them in an affordable way for our members. Um, Would you say that people longer, are starting to take notice, like outside of Las Vegas and outside of the teachers? After we finish this in about six months I or less, I would like to write, not finish, but after we get this all built the way we need to, uh, I would like to have this written up in Harvard's, Harvard Business Review or in Journal of American Medical Association or New England Journal, somewhere where people could see it. Um, or in the local newspapers, we're, we are doing PR on this right now, and we're beginning to push it out there. Because I am getting pushback from the government locally because I am sure some of the vendors that we eliminated are putting pressure on them to try to stop us with our pharmacy program, try to stop us with the way we're contracting. I mean, there are there are people that are very upset. I mean, if you've lost, you know, 12 million or 6.5 million, if people are getting paid on per transaction profits that they were making off of pharmacy and they're no longer getting it, there's pushback and we're starting to see that. And as we move forward with what we're doing, there's a lot, lot of issues coming to the top, and we're battling those every day. So it's what we're doing is a great model. It's just very um, intense. I think you would like this um, because it really is a community-based project. I speak to the teachers two, three nights a week. We're out there with the Clark County Education Association, uh, meeting with each of the representatives from each of the schools. We got we were getting them behind us because you know when Obama was president, he used to say that if the wind isn't behind my wings, I can't fly, even if I have all the best ideas on earth. And that's kind of how this has to be. I need the teachers backing up what we're doing. Right. But we've so the other thing we've done is we've. Um, improved member services, and we created health navigators on the phone. So people call and they don't know what to do or they're not appreciating what their doctors are telling them. And so we've built people that can listen, understand, pull the information internally to, um, to, the, to the member that's calling and help them understand that they have choices. And we have a group of doctors and health professionals nationally that are part of a company called Consumer Med that actually review ex any of the concerns members have, and we do what we call expert opinion, or we look to find the best um, form of action for that member to take to manage their care. And so that concierge program is working. We've had 178 people since January actually go through expert opinion review.
Okay, we'll be right back for more after a word from our sponsors. Yeah, we don't have any sponsors yet, but um, I did want to give you all a second to digest everything that's been discussed so far. Uh, coming up, Michael is going to continue to talk about the impact him and his company have made, but also talk about his roots and why he's dedicated his life to this. So, you know, you know, shake it out. Take a second. All right, let's get back into it. Um, so you, uh, you, you talked about the pushback that you've been getting. I mean, besides the fact that you're taking money out of people's pockets, I mean, for great reason, but, uh, I mean, everyone agrees that something is fundamentally wrong with the American healthcare system. So why is there so much device divisiveness on the matter? Do you think it's a lack of empathy, a lack of understanding? Where do you think is the disconnect? Um, I think the disconnect is that healthcare is very local. Let's start with that first. And in, when people try to look at things nationally, instead of dealing with local, you lose out on the local culture and the local healthcare culture and it's hard to fix. Um, everybody wants affordable care. Everybody doesn't want um, single payer because a lot of people have employers, 90 and close to, I don't know the percentage, I think it's between 85 and 88% of the population have some type of care, either with the employer or with Medicare Medic or Medicaid that covers them. So, it's the 11% or 12% that don't have it that are at risk. And that number becomes pretty high when we hear about the 32 million people who are out of care or the addition as, as the system stays dysfunctional and as people are fighting even the small things that were done through the Affordable Care Act, pretty large actually. Um, and as people are trying to fight that and push back on that, we're seeing more and more people get uninsured. But overall, a lot of people have care. It's just making it so that it works well and integrating with whatever is built. And that's where the confusion comes. We're talking about trying to tear some folks like some of the politicians say, let's figure out how to get a government option and see if we can move more people into that, which eventually if employers saw was affordable they probably say hey we pay a tax for to move people into that option but it has to happen step by step and that hasn't occurred yet so people are trying to do things overnight and it's going to be hard to do that because it's taken me a year and a quarter to get this far with just forty thousand lives and we basically gutted the whole program People are frustrated because they spend too much on health care. But there's other things that impact it, too, like the high cost of some of the new genetics, the genetic management programs, genetic um, testing, some of the high cost of some of the new biological drugs. Some of them are $30,000 a month. The high cost of just health care inflation with a lot of the ancillaries that are more expensive. Hospitals charge a lot. I'm saying we have to figure out how to work locally to make it effective. So let me give you an example of what we did here. In Las Vegas, there's a system called 
Valley Health. Um, we got together with them. They have six hospitals, and we said, let's integrate with you, and let's try to get our members to start to use you more if you work with us and give us decent rates and fair rates. And they did that, and they gave it to us. So, like, if you got admitted for, you know, appendicitis, we would know the price before you go in there. It's fixed. It never changes unless there's a complication that keeps you in for too many days. But overall, it's fixed, and therefore, we manage it. Instead of worrying about when do we get this person out of the hospital, it becomes the hospital's job as a partner with us to get them discharged and managed afterwards. So we've built that. We've worked with them on four of their clinics. And remember, I told you teachers don't have a lot of time. We've extended in four of their clinics hours from 5 o'clock to seven teachers only. We're opening up on Saturday uh, from eight to two and Sundays eight to noon to support the education community. So it's beginning to really help with, they're helping with access. They're also introduced us to a new um, physician group that's forming that is trying to build a countywide group that will work collaboratively with organizations like what we're building so that it becomes their risk and ours to get the care delivered most efficiently. And they will open their hours later too. So we have all this going on at the same time, which helps us to make it work effectively. But if you stay away from the rhetoric and you build locally, we could take these local programs and now use them as a model of what could go nationally. If you build a national program, at that point you have models. We don't have models. Kaiser's a model, but it's huge and it's very expensive. We need local models that get the middle out and get the cost down. Um, we've also redone our website. We re-communicate with people through it. It seems like, and we're um, doing everything we can to make this effectively an interaction with our members and all healthcare has to be interactive and communicating through everybody needs to communicate with each other. And we're building a lot of chronic programs, building a foundation to be able to support some of those chronic programs like for diabetes, COPD, cardiovascular disease. So people who have those could be taken care of, but we could look at this as a, a model that works here. In fact, we're working with a foundation out of the Bay area that will, that's going to be looking at funding us for this to be able to support whatever we build so it could be taken to San Francisco or to Detroit or wherever because we've kind of solved, worked on trying to work on the holy grail to fix diabetes or get it under control. And we're using a lot of really cool technology that nobody's really seen yet. So now that we've gone through teachers health trust and healthcare in general. Um, I'm just curious why all of this is so important to you. Well, I've been working in healthcare for a long time. When I was in college, I worked in this community, actually in between or prior to, I was in this program actually that where you had, where people were totally disadvantaged, really poorly disadvantaged and they had no running water. They had no plumbing. 
so no plumbing. You had to go to the outhouse. It was in Ohio. There was snow on the ground, and they're still pumping their water. They had to use wood stove. And it was a community of migrant people that were forced to migrate from down south because of the devastation that happened to African-Americans down in the southern part of the state to move up north. And I got involved with that program, started to look at some of the missing. I've helped them with redoing the housing, getting plumbing into the area, actually spent time living there, which was not a lot of fun, but it taught me a lot about how to do community organization, how to build programs and services. And the biggest hole I saw was healthcare. And then after undergrad school, I started to work in community mental health and started to work in adolescent community mental health and learned a lot about that and saw some of the holes there. But it was all linked to the holes in a healthcare system that was unresponsive to individuals. So I went to grad school and got what they call a traineeship where they paid 100% of my tuition and paid me each month. I don't remember, it wasn't much, like three, $400 a month, but they paid me so that I could get, you know, an understanding of how to work in these communities, develop healthcare programs that were effective and could make a difference so we could get to, at, my, at that time, I wanted a single payer system and thought, you know, I didn't know the system at a micro level like I do now. And I did a lot of reports on it. I got involved in prison healthcare too, and kind of did both prison healthcare and regular hospital administration to kind of learn about that too. Um, when I left school, I started working in hospitals. I started to work with health plans. I um, started to get involved in what we call managed care in the Bay Area, and then ended up going to Blue Cross of Massachusetts, where I started to meet with some really credible, credible people that wanted to make a difference in the healthcare of all individuals, uh, Mass General form, what they call Partners Health, and everybody's goal was to make a difference and to get people affordable care, access to care, and to make sure we can stop that heavy rise of obesity, um, metabolic issues, diabetes, heart disease, et cetera. But no matter what we did, we got nowhere. And it was like running on a treadmill. Then I was offered a job to take on the um, managed care for Sutter Health and was their CEO and ran all of their um, basically healthcare for about 178, I think it was around 178,000 lives. And the middle owned us. The cost of the delivery was so high. Hospitals who were running this plan had high, had very expensive costs. And I realized that it's really difficult to do this effectively. So I started consulting, started to work with CareMore, as a consultant whose goal was to be able to build care centers to work with chronic care seniors that were very expensive and to help them get a place to meet, work with them affordably, get seniors to actually socialize together and keep people out of the hospital and keep them healthy. And the model they had was really cool and worked effectively. They were acquired by Anthem and a lot of the soul when you become part of a big for-profit venture can be dissipated quickly, but where they were, 
was really um, amazing. And then from there, I started consulting with UCSF, John Muir, and we formed Canopy. I started to help build the network. While doing that, I learned about this opportunity in Las Vegas with the Teachers Health Trust. And when I evaluated the market, I realized, one, they didn't have the strong health systems like the Bay Area had with Kaiser and Sutter and Stanford and UCSF. So nobody had a stronghold in this market to keep. So maybe you could build something here, too. In the Bay Area and in much of California, a lot of the East Coast, they have these independent physician organizations. They call them IPAs. They kind of work and own how they do things. And that same model never changes. And I wanted to go somewhere where we can create something unique. And that existed here. And then lastly, I had a, a population here that really needed help. And you could see that they were being strangulated by high costs, poor delivery of care, poor um, referral structures, and they were getting worse, not better. So I figured, hey, here's an opportunity to try to build something that we could use as a model. But it all goes back to when I first got involved in healthcare, which was there, if we could make healthcare work, we could probably do anything socially to make a difference in this country. If we can't, we have sick people it's, or people not caring for their health. It's hard to do anything. I mean, look at some of the countries that tackled this before building. Yeah, we have this huge infrastructure here, right? All of these um, employer health plans, we have union health plans, we have Medi-Cal, Medicaid, Medicare. We have now Medicare Advantage plans. We have all of this infrastructure, but we, unlike other parts of the world, they started with more of a single-payer structure. We have to figure out how do we evolve into something that's more effective for each individual in their communities. And so I saw this as a way to build a microcosm of what could be used elsewhere. And I think it is. So, I mean, clearly the system has been flawed for so long and you've been trying for so long to fix it in some way. It must be super frustrating. So I'm just wondering how you kind of keep pushing through, even though you may be extremely frustrated with the process. Actually, I like the process right now because what we're doing now is actually working. I mean, when you bring down costs 18 million, you get the member per month cost down almost $80. When you get people lower pharmaceutical prices, when you figure out a way to actually give people access to care on the phone, use telehealth correctly, um, work effectively to give people the right access and behavioral health. What I didn't tell you is we now have uh, it's hard to get behavioral health in any community in this country. We now have a new behavioral health program where we have a single number people call. We have concierge people answering the phone who then help them, if it's not an emergency, to find an accessible provider that they could see quickly. And we every day we're scanning the community to find those that are available and getting them access to it. So the frustration isn't there. What's frustrating is that we are underfunded and we need greater funding to be able to make this work. 
at yet a much lower funding rate than anybody else spends in this country. So if we can get $412 to $420 per member per month instead of the $392, we're still $125 or $130 less than the average teacher health plan, even much less than the average Affordable Care Act plan. Um, we could be a plug-in for what anybody wants to build for a national health plan. you got to have you got to have some examples. You can't just build. You've got to have something that works and effectively allows something like this to really um, turn into becoming an example for the country. So, no, I'm not frustrated. You asked me, if you asked me, was I frustrated? I've been, it's been hard to find an angle to get to this point. And unfortunately, it's, it's at this point, you know, it takes takes a while, but I'm there now. Does that make sense, Jason? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, thanks a lot for giving me your time. Uh, this was super interesting, and I'm really grateful that you did that. Now you could tell Justice that, because um, he hasn't even the slightest idea what I do. <laughs> I know. That's, I've actually been telling him, and he's been re actually excited to listen to it. <laughs> Okay. No, that's good. All right, man. I'll talk to you in a little bit. All right. Talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Bold Moves Only podcast. I hope this was informative and interesting, and hopefully we can come back to the subject soon. Continue to stay safe, and if you're able to use this time to do something you've always wanted to do, you should do that. All right. Thank you.